We're going to spend some time looking at the Bible now. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, then Luke will be around page 866 in the Black Bibles. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can keep that. Take that home. We'd love for you to have one of your own. We study the Bible every week because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we want to sit at his feet and learn from him. In Luke, we've been studying these middle chapters of Luke, chapters 4 through 9, and we've called it the first followers of Jesus. We've seen how Jesus built this movement that has overtaken the world, the world's largest religion, this unstoppable movement called Christianity. And we've seen him repeatedly amaze and call his first followers. He would amaze them, and then he'd call them to following him. This story is a focus on the, uh, the amazingness of Jesus. This is an amazement story we have today. Um, so we're going to see Jesus amaze his first followers. And what do we do when we see how amazing Jesus is? Well, we should keep following him, right? Like that, that should be our response. So this week, we're in chapter 9, verses 23 through 45. Chapter 9, 23 through 45, and we're calling it the new exodus. The new exodus. Jesus accomplishes the new Exodus. What's the old Exodus? Well, the old Exodus is when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt in the Old Testament. The story about that is the second book of the Old Testament called Exodus. If you're not sure what it means, probably the easiest way to remember it is that word exit. It sounds very similar. It's the exit from slavery. That's basically how you can remember it. It can be translated as departure. It can mean rescue. God rescued his people from their slavery. And then this rescue formed them as a nation, and it was something they would celebrate every year with holidays. It became a part of their DNA. It became a part of their identity. We're this rescued people. Throughout the Old Testament, you can look back and you can see when times got tough, when they struggled to believe that God was really with them, you see this especially in the Psalms, but in other prophecies as well, When times got tough, they would say, ah, but this we can remember. God rescued us in the Exodus. We can look back in time and say, we were slaves and he set us free. We were slaves in Egypt. We were oppressed in Egypt and then he set us free. He gave us our independence. He rescued us. And so this is something that they would remember again and again in the walk of faith for an Old Testament saint was to remember that God was a good God that would rescue them in the future because he had rescued them in the past. And so we have a very parallel walk of faith in the New Testament. We look back on the rescue of Jesus, the new Exodus, through his death and resurrection. And when times get tough and we feel like we can't trust God, we say, okay, I'm going to look back at the cross, and there I will see the character of God. He's a rescuing God. I don't feel very rescued today, but I look back and I see what he accomplished in the new Exodus through his death and resurrection, and I see, okay, I can trust him. I can keep following him. And that's what the Old Testament people of God would do. They keep looking back on the Exodus. They keep telling stories about the Exodus, this great miraculous rescue in the Old Testament. I have something to share with you uh, as we're coming up on our nation's formational story, right? We're about to celebrate the Independence Day for our nation, right? Freedom Day for us. July 4th is Independence Day, and I have something to confess. I don't like Independence Day parades. (laughs) I hope you don't think poorly of me because of that. 
Where I grew up, it was a very important tradition. How we celebrated Independence Day was going to this parade. But I just found it very ironic that I had to lose my physical independence to celebrate (laughs) independence, right? Like I had to be subjected to claustrophobia and bad traffic and little children spilling snow cones on my feet. And that was how I was supposed to celebrate my freedom, right? My question for you is, how do you celebrate freedom? Maybe it's not the Independence Day parade. For you, maybe it's not a parade. Maybe it's a cookout, right? How many people like to celebrate Independence Day with a cookout? Some of you? All right, yeah. You can get an amen for that. Um, how about fireworks? Anybody like to celebrate Independence Day with fireworks? Okay. All right, so there are alternative ways to celebrate our freedom, right? But as we look at the New Testament, and we try to carry this metaphor over, what we see is it's much more important that we answer the question, how do we live as free people? That's much more important than how do we celebrate our freedom. Do you see the difference? Like celebrating it is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm proud to be an American. I'm thankful for my freedom. We do celebrate in some ways, but it's more important that I would live as a free person. And this is the spiritual reality that the Bible points out. It's more important that the people of God would live as free people. They would walk in justice and righteousness. They would love mercy. They would do acts of kindness. They would honor God with their lives. That's true freedom. So Paul says in Galatians 5.13, you've been set free. Don't use your freedom to cover up sin and selfishness, but use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's what freedom is for. And so often we mix this up, right? Because as Americans, sadly... At worst, our culture is obsessed with this kind of radical individual freedom where we say freedom means I get to do whatever trashy thing I want to do. And that's so often how we translate freedom. When actually freedom is so we can live a full life, we can honor God. And that's definitely the biblical view of freedom. So we see Jesus here talking about the new exodus. We see a grouping of stories, and they're centered around a funny little phrase here that's actually the Greek word exodus. It says in English, departure, right? Exodus can mean exit from slavery. It can mean departure from slavery in the Old Testament. So what I want to do is I want to read just a few of these key verses, and we'll start by reading Luke 9, verses 28 through 31. So just a few little verses in the middle that focus on this phrase of of exodus in Greek, which is departure in English. So chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is an amazing story, a crazy story. It's often called the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Because it became dazzling white. We see the the full glory of Jesus as the true Son of God. We see kind of the, the heavenly version of Jesus revealed here on this mountaintop. But what's really interesting is he's talking with Moses and Elijah. And what are they talking about? The departure he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What's the Greek word? The exodus he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus is about to accomplish the new exodus 
in Jerusalem through his death and resurrection. There was a lesser exodus where God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. There's a greater exodus coming where Jesus sets us free from sin and death and selfishness. And that's what they're discussing. Let me pray for us and ask Jesus to help us, ask his spirit to be present with us as we study the the word together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We trust that you speak to us in it. And we ask that your spirit would come and meet with us, that your spirit would convict us of our need, and that your spirit would do what your spirit loves to do, magnify Jesus, his glory. Help us to see the Father through him. Help us to understand who you are and what you're saying in this text. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the old exodus was their rescue from slavery in Egypt. New exodus is what Jesus delivers through his death and resurrection. And so all of Luke is now kind of rushing towards this ending with the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was kind of perplexing, this kind of interesting figure, and you're going to see tension mounting and mounting and building in the story as Luke carries on in the next several chapters. Um, And so when we looked at the old rescue, if you study this in the book of Exodus, you can just go and read it yourself. It's only about 15 chapters if you just want to get the rescue story. Um, You've got about 15 chapters of Exodus And in this old Exodus, you had them having to deny their old gods and their old way of life. That was part of it. Then you had them turning from the glory of this great empire in Egypt and turning towards the greater glory of God, seeing him as having this greater and better glory. And then finally, you see them struggling to keep trusting God. Uh, Trust, another word we use for trust is faith. They struggled then as he was taking them through the wilderness. They were like, man, things aren't all perfect. We're still struggling to see how this is better than being slaves, right? And so they struggled with the reality of day-to-day trust, day-to-day faith. We're going to see kind of the same outline in our text. We're going to see that the new exodus in Jesus, the new thing that Jesus is accomplishing is a denial of ourself. It's a denial of our old way of life. It's denial of self. Secondly, we'll see that the new exodus is better than the old. It's better than the old. Don't turn back. It's better than the old. And then thirdly, we'll see that the new exodus is experienced by faith. It's experienced by faith. Trust in God day to day. So number one, the new exodus is denial of self. This is one of the hardest sayings of Jesus. We're going to go back now and look at verses 23 through 27. Luke 9, 23 through 27, the new exodus is denial of self. It sounds like death, definitely sounds like death, but Jesus says it's through this doorway of seeming death that you'll find life. It's a mystery of following Jesus. So look at verse 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus... All it entails is denying yourself, picking up a cross daily, and following him. Picking up a cross daily and following him. So he's like, okay, you got to deny yourself. That sounds hard enough. And then he adds a little color to it by saying, okay, this is what it looks like to deny self. It looks like carrying a cross daily. I pulled a picture online of an electric chair. It's a tool of execution. It'd be very weird uh, if we hung electric chairs in our church, right? As a symbol of what it means to love and follow Jesus. But that's basically what we do when we hang a cross in our church. It's a means of execution. 
it's become a symbol of hope to us because it's the way that Jesus rescued us. But he's saying, I want you to think about an image in your mind that they would all, all been familiar with. They would all see this, right? In our modern world, we don't see executions. We, like that's not a thing normal people see, right? It's not an average thing. But in the, in the ancient world, in Rome, the average citizen was familiar with executions. They'd seen executions. It was purposefully public and shameful and terrifying and horrible and grisly and bloody and awful. And Jesus says, that's the image I want you to have of what it means to follow me. All I want you to do is submit to a grisly death. That's all I want you to do. Now, to be clear, sometimes as followers of Jesus, we have to actually physically die. That is sometimes a part of it. In some parts of the world right now, there are people dying and being tortured for their faith. And God may call you and may call me to that. I don't, I'm not a prophet, so it's like, I don't see that any time in our future in this country. Thankfully, we have some freedom still, but, but that could be where he takes us. And that could mean death, physical death for Jesus, right? And then that ushers us into his presence and, and all is good. But here he's not actually talking about physical death. He's using a metaphor. He's saying, I want you to have a metaphor for what it looks like to follow me by faith. What does it look like to follow Jesus by faith? It feels psychologically like a grisly death. It's denying your selfishness, right? So he's saying, pick up your cross daily. He's saying every day, make a decision in your daily life not to go be actually literally crucified on the cross like Jesus was, but he's saying, pick up your metaphorical cross every day, turn yourself over to me. Every day, make the decision when you get up, I'm not going to save myself. Only Jesus can save me. So I'm going to deny myself as Savior and God, and I'm going to turn to Jesus. That's the daily decision you have to make. That's what it means to follow Jesus. He's saying, if you want to be my follower, you're going to deny yourself. It feels like death. It feels like the worst decision in the world. And Jesus says, trust me, it's going to be okay. Trust me, it's going to be worth it. Jesus is calling them for this gruesome death. It's a metaphor for our daily life of, of faith. The other New Testament phrase that's used a lot is repentance. Not to be confused with penance. If you come from a Catholic background, penance is more like um, making things right in your life, you know, paying off debt in a sense. But repentance means to turn. You're turning from self, idols, good things that you thought might save you, and you're turning to Jesus. So that's what he's saying here. Turn from your old ways and trust me. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turned from, faith is turned to. Trust me, Jesus says. Follow me. Believe that I can save you. He's asking us to trust in his love. Here's where I think this really hits home for a lot of us. A lot of us are still holding on to one little piece in our life, a, a dream, an obsession, maybe even a bitterness that we can't let go of. And we say, Jesus, I can follow you as long as you fix this, as long as you settle this, as long as you fulfill this, then I'll really follow you. And he's saying, let go of that and just trust me. Let go of that. And just trust me. Deny yourself. Don't think that you can save yourself by figuring out the problem. Say, I don't even know how to solve this problem. And turn and trust me. That's what Jesus is asking us.
Deny yourself to follow him. That's where the new exodus is found. True independence is when you're declaring independence from sin and selfishness, but you're declaring dependence on God. I talked about Galatians 5.13 earlier. Paul says that our um, life of freedom is not to cover up sin and selfishness. Our life of freedom is so that we can serve one another in love and serve God, right? So we're always going to serve someone. Bob Dylan, folk singer, said you got to serve somebody. We're always serving somebody. Is it going to be self or the God of the universe whose very character is grace-giving joy and beauty? That's who we should serve. And so we turn from self, we trust him. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this in Mere Christianity towards the end of the book. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Isn't that crazy? The more we let go of ourselves, the more we actually become our true selves. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and my upbringing and my surrounding and my natural desires. That's the irony. We, we cling to self thinking that that is free will. And as you cling to self, you lose your freedom. As you let go of self, you gain your freedom. That's what Lewis is saying. You become more creative, more unique, more amazing as you let go of self. And you trust Jesus and you learn to love him and love other people. That's what you were made for. That's the fuel that you were made to run on. Are you scared to let go and trust Jesus? You might be if this is the only thing you ever heard Jesus say, right? I mean, this sounds pretty harsh. But this is the same Jesus that says this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are labor and who are heavy laden, all you who are weary, all you who are tired. He says, come to me and you will find rest. Those of you who are weary, you'll find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon me, upon you. Take my yoke, Jesus says, and you'll find true freedom. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the same Jesus. You will find rest. It's worth it to let go of self. You are called to freedom, brothers, Paul says. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh. Instead, serve one another through love. Some of you might be those who have committed yourself to Jesus already and you need to just let go of that dream and trust that Ephesians chapter 3 is true, that as you know the love of Christ in your heart, you will find more than you could ask or imagine in him. Let those old dreams die and Jesus will give you better dreams in him. Some of you have never made the commitment to entrust yourself to Jesus. Some of you have never admitted before God, I'm a sinner, I've been trying to save myself, and I need to revoke my rights to self and trust in you. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I trust you to save me. You're my only hope. Ask him to save you, and he will. Deny that you can save yourself. Trust him to save you, and he will. You'll find that you're taking part in the new exodus, the great rescue, the spiritual rescue through 
from death and sin and selfishness. Well, the second point we see is that this new exodus is better than the old. We see this in verses 28 through 36. The new exodus is better than the old. So it's built on the old. Again, the old exodus is like the foundational piece of what it looks like to look back to God's character, to see that God's a rescuing God, and then trust him in your daily life. You see this again and again throughout the Old Testament. There's this one great supernatural rescuing event where God shows his loving kindness. It's the exodus. And that shows the people of God they can trust him. They sing about it. They prophesy about it. They talk about it. They write poetry about it. They have holidays about it, right? And it forms their identity. For us, in the same way, this new exodus that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, given us his resurrection life, this forms our identity. And it shows us that we can trust him. And there are days when we struggle to trust him. So we have to look back on this reality. Well, we see the story unfold on the mountain. Some think this is Mount Tabor. Some think it's Mount Hermon. I think because the time signature of about eight days and other texts talk about six days, you know, give or take some of the other events around this story. So six to eight days to climb a mountain. That's probably Mount Hermon, which was the tallest mountain in the area. It's one that we got to visit when we went to Caesarea Philippi and Tel Dan in Israel. These are these great places of idol worship at the base of the mountain. So we didn't climb the mountain. But at the base of the mountain, these famous places in Israel's history of idol worship. And on that actual mountain, there are more uh, artifacts archaeologically of ancient pagan idol worship than like any other mountain in the Middle East. And so this was just a well-known place of worshiping false gods. So it makes sense that Jesus would want to reveal his full glory on this mountain. So no matter what, though, who cares which mountain it is, it's about Jesus, right? The revelation is about Jesus. So it says in verse 28, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So like the incredible revelations we get in the final book of Revelation or the visions of Ezekiel or visions of Daniel, we have these visions of Jesus as a heavenly being. He's, it's called the transfiguration. It's, he's transfigured, right? He looks, different. he looks more glorious than his normal physical human self. Verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. So he's talking to two guys as he becomes a heavenly being, two guys that just happen to be dead, so there's some sort of resurrected form of them, right? On this mountain. This is just a crazy event. And Moses and Elijah are symbolic, important, not symbolic like they're not real, but they symbolize all these other things. They're real, and they symbolize all of the Old Testament. Moses wrote the foundational first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, He was the one that was administrating God's law and the Mosaic covenant and the Exodus Levitical covenants there in the Old Testament. And then Elijah is just kind of known throughout all the stories of Israel as the greatest prophet to ever live. So this is kind of a summary of all the Old Testament symbolically in these two guys. Another interesting thing with Moses and Elijah is the only two times that miracles were incredibly common in the Bible besides Jesus was during the the rule and the ministry of Moses and Elijah. So you had the ministry of uh, Moses and his follower Joshua. You had the ministry of Elijah and his follower Elisha. And then you have the ministry of Jesus and his followers, the apostles, right? And those are really the only three times in the Bible that you just have tons of miracles, lots of miracles, testifying to these are voices, these are mouthpieces of God. 
And so this is incredibly important that he would be talking to these guys. What are they talking about? Verse 31, they appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure, Greek word exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, like imagine these guys, they've fallen asleep. They're on some, you know, one more prayer meeting with Jesus. They fall asleep. They wake up, and this is what they see, right? Their minds are blown. Somebody asked me after the first service, like, why didn't they tell anybody? Later on, it says they didn't tell anybody about it. I was like, I don't know, but they were freaked out, right? Like, this is trauma, psychological trauma here. Um, they're just completely freaked out. Those who were with them were heavy with sleep. When they fully awake, became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting with him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So he's like, okay, let's, like, let's keep this going, right? Let's keep the revival going. Like, let's, let's keep them here. This is amazing. He's not really sure what to do. And it says here, not knowing what he said. Like, he just didn't know what he said. It's a little clear even in the Gospel of Mark. He didn't really know what he's talking about. He's just trying to, like, extend the glory. But here's the thing. Jesus was revealing himself to them. And he'll say later in John chapter 14, it's better for you even that I send your Holy Spirit. Because my task for you is not to just sit on the mountaintop in the glory My task for you is to walk by faith in the valley. And the Holy Spirit will enable you and he'll enable us to do that. So they see this better, greater, incredible glory in Jesus. It goes on and it says, verse 34, As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. They were afraid, but they entered. In Exodus 40, Moses couldn't even enter because the cloud overshadowed things. It was too much for him. We have a similar kind of story in the dedication of the temple of Solomon. The glory cloud was just overwhelming and they couldn't function, right? But here, they're entering into it, which is fascinating. And it's a, a picture of what the rest of the New Testament says, that in the rest of the New Testament, in the New Covenant, through Jesus, by His Holy Spirit, we have the very presence of God entering into our life. We're the new temple God's people together. We're the temple and the glory cloud is present in us by His Holy Spirit. And so we have, again, this better covenant, this better exodus, this better rescue in Jesus. He's the one that finally accomplished everything that the Old Testament was just pointing to, picturing, waiting in anticipation for. They entered the cloud. Verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Pay attention to Jesus. The way Hebrews chapter 1 says it is, there's been a bunch of other voices in the past, but in these last days, he's speaking through his son. Pay attention to Jesus. Elevate Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that went before. Jesus is the better exodus, not in the sense that the old exodus was bad, but he's better. The new covenant is better, not because the old covenant is bad, but the new covenant is better. And that's what all of the book of Hebrews, this letter to Jewish Christians in the New Testament, that's what the entire letter to Hebrews argues. Jesus is better. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. He was all that was left, and he was all that they needed. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Why? 
I don't know. But they were freaked out. They had seen the true glory, the better glory of Jesus. I found a picture. Uh, this is kind of just like a cartoon picture that's supposed to show the Old Testament Exodus reality of the manifestation of God's presence with his people. This uh, fire would descend at night, and it would be a cloud that would cast shade during the day. So it would be his glory cloud at day and at night, showing his presence descending on the tabernacle. As I said, the New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit is that fire, is that cloud that indwells us now with God's glory, that enables us to point to Jesus. How do we do that? Well, it's when we trust him and we love people and we serve people in in Jesus' name. That's when his true glory is manifest in our life. In Hebrews chapter 3, Paul is very specific, or not necessarily Paul, but the author of the Hebrews is very specific here about the better glory of Jesus over Moses in the old Exodus. It says in Hebrews 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So what is it saying? Well, it's saying Jesus is God. He built the house. And Moses is just a servant in the house. So he goes on. He says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We're the house of God where the presence of God is revealed. How? If we hold fast to our confidence, if we hold fast to our hope in Jesus as we trust in him, as we walk with him, this better exodus is revealed. This new life is revealed. So what is the application of this better glory in Jesus, of this new rescue, this new covenant, this new exodus that's better than the old? Well, again, it's not throwing out the Old Testament. We read the Old Testament. We love the Old Testament because it points to the New Testament. It points to the pure glory of Jesus, right? It reveals who he is. But we have to watch out for Jewish legalism. We have to watch out for this habit of Christians that say, you know what, trusting Jesus and obeying him and loving other people, that's a little too vague, right? Like, I want something I can taste and touch and smell. So let's go back to the Jewish rituals. And maybe that would make me more holy than my other Christian friends, because they're kind of wandering around in confusion. This is a huge temptation in this time in history, right? Number one, we've got the internet, so you can just go find any cult you want and make it make sense to yourself, right? Like with enough videos and enough YouTube, any cult sounds good. So that's a danger. But particularly, we're kind of in this fractured place in society where there's just like a loss of institutional order and security. Everybody's kind of just like fighting and and looking and grabbing for some kind of sense of order in our culture right now. Jesus is telling you, I'm enough, I'm enough. Trust me. Trust me. Walk in obedience to me. Obey my moral commands. Serve other people in love. Listen to my word. You don't have to revert back to these Jewish commands. Now, is it wrong to do Jewish things? Not at all, right? We did this whole series on the Levitical feasts. We talked about different ways that the Jews would celebrate God's goodness, these different cultural ways they did that. Those things are wonderful. That's a wonderful curriculum to use. Just don't use that curriculum and then say, I'm holier than you other people that aren't using it, right? 
It's a slippery slope we fall into. Enjoy it as a gift from God, but don't think it makes you better than other Christians, right? Enjoy seeing deep and wonderful things in the Old Testament, but remember that a baby Christian that's only read half of a gospel but loves Jesus is just as holy in God's eyes as you are if you've memorized the whole Old Testament. It doesn't make you more holy to know more Old Testament. It doesn't make you more holy to practice the Jewish feasts. It doesn't make you more holy to pronounce things with a Jewish pronunciation, okay? You have to be really careful. Is it fun? Sure, it's fun. I took Hebrew. I loved it, right? But English is much easier for me. We have to recognize that all of us, no matter our knowledge or experience of these Jewish rituals, we're all holy before God because Jesus is what makes us holy. It's trusting in him. His death and resurrection. He's accomplished the new exodus, and it really is better than the old, and the scriptures are clear about that. Again, that doesn't mean we throw out the Old Testament, but it also means we need to guard against falling into Jewish legalism, thinking that these practices will make us somehow more holy, like a, you know, extra special Christian if we're practicing these ancient practices. Colossians is very clear about this. It says in Colossians 2.16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so the gospel center is saying, I can enjoy these Old Testament things, but it doesn't make me holier than other people. Take it or leave it. These are gifts to be received by Jesus. Faithfulness is trusting in Jesus. He is the substance. The better exodus is found in him. My real problem is sin and selfishness. My real problem is like not knowing which holiday to follow, right? Like that's not really my main problem. My main problem is, is what am I going to do with the freedom that he's given me? I'm going to love God and serve other people. That, that's what he calls us to. In Colossians, it goes on to describe other cultic practices that people were falling into there. And I think we have the same problem here. There are people that were uh, impressing on them ascetic practices, which is like being hard on your body to think that makes you more holy than other people. Is it good to be hard on your body? Yes, we're a lazy people. It's good to be hard on your body, but it actually has no real benefit in restraining your sin nature. Isn't that crazy? Like, does it have some benefits? Yeah. Paul says physical training is of, of some benefit. Yeah. But our true benefit is trusting Jesus. That's what transforms us. So Paul goes on in Colossians, and he says, why are you submitting to these regulations of don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to those things that perish as they're used? Why are you submitting to these human precepts, these human teachings? Paul says this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value. That's hard. That's hard to hear. What's the only thing that has value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? Jesus, his spirit, trusting him. The new exodus is really better than the old. Finally, we see that the new exodus is experienced by faith, and we see this in a short little story of a healing that happens right after they come down the mountain. The new exodus is experienced by faith. We see this in verses 30. uh, I have 35. It's 37 through 45. It's experienced by faith. So just like in the old exodus, God rescued them, and then they wandered through the wilderness, and they're like, "We're, we're not sure if we want to keep trusting this God, right? 
It was a fight of faith, a fight of trust. We have to keep fighting to trust God. The way they were called to do this is they looked back on his rescue and loving kindness and promises and said, okay, I can keep trusting him. We're, we're to do the same thing. We look back on the new exodus through the death and resurrection of Jesus and we keep trusting him. We keep having faith. So verse 37 on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now this is surprising where this sits in the book of Luke. Because just previously, right, Jesus had given them power to heal, to cast out demons, right? Did he take the power away? Like, what happened? What Did they forget the lessons he taught them? Maybe they're practicing the wrong technique. So they begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Another hard saying of Jesus. Like, man, Jesus, come on. You're being harsh, right? And this twisted generation thing, this is, this is the kind of language of the Old Testament where they were convicting the people of just complete disobedience to God, right? Jesus is saying, how long will you not trust me? How long will we not trust God and keep trying to trust ourselves? We can't win this war. We can't fight for independence on our own. Only through the fight that he wages through his new exodus, through his death and resurrection. A faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the, clean, the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. As I've previously read this story, I've thought, hmm, like what's that technique? You know, like I'm a minister of the gospel. I better learn this technique because sometimes the disciples are able to help and sometimes they can't. So, so I would see the story and I'd be like, man, they were, they were really doing something wrong. What, what was wrong? What's the missing technique here? When you read the parallel story, it gives you a little more clue. So the clue we have in this story is Jesus says, you don't have faith, right? In the other story in Mark, the parallel, it says in Mark 9, after he healed the boy, he entered a house and his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So they're like whispering to Jesus after it's all said and done, like what went wrong? Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Nothing but prayer. And it occurred to me as I was studying this, it was like that's, like that's the exercise of faith, Right? It's not about technique at all. This is not like Jesus saying, you used myrrh and aloe. You should have used like thieves oil and peppermint, <laughs> right? Like that's where we want to go. We want to go like, oh, demons, you've got to have the right technique. When it comes to healing, it's all about having, you know, the right magic book and the right words. Or maybe like you have to know the name of the demon, you know, like you got to know it. That's the kind of stuff that goes around about this stuff. It's not about technique. It's about the power of God. It's the power of God. He, he says in Luke, it's about faith. In Mark, they asked him, what, what is it? He's like, prayer. 
What, what is prayer? Michael Reeves wrote a great book on prayer, a little tiny yellow book. If, if you have a, a very short attention span but want to read more in prayer, it's a good one because it's only like 30 pages long. And in this book on prayer, he says, prayer is basically the expression of faith. Prayer is faithing. Prayer is us saying, God, you, not me, right? Like that's what prayer is. Prayer is me talking to God, saying, God, I want to talk to you. I want to know you. I need you to fix my problem because I can't fix my problem. I need you to guide me because I can't guide me. God, I need you. And that's what he's saying here is the problem. They'd been given power to cast out demons, and then they run up to one they can't cast out. He's like, you should have asked me. (laughs) You should have asked. You should have had faith. And so the new Exodus, again, is, is experienced by faith. It's a, it's a daily walk of faith, a daily walk of, of every day deciding, I'm, I'm going to trust you and not me. I'm not going to trust in my technique. The biblical language for this is the flesh. You know, in the past, I've come to trust in how strong I am or how smart I am or how charming I am. Biblical word for that is the flesh. Don't trust in your flesh. Trust in Jesus. That's faith. That's prayer. So I think one of the great symbols for this is the bridge. I love to watch action movies. I like action movies so much I even watch like B action movies sometimes. And there's just this trope of the rope bridge in the jungle. Anybody ever seen this one in a movie before? Yeah? Um, It's just a common thing, right? Like if you're an action hero, you're strong, you're powerful, and you're tough enough to make it across a terrible bridge. Like, that's just kind of like basic action hero skills, right? And so we can think about faith in this term. We can think about faith like, ah, yeah, it's not so much about me trusting that that bridge bridge can carry me. It's about me being an awesome action hero. But that's not what faith is. Faith is not about technique. A lot of theologians say it this way. Faith is not about the quality of your faith. It's about the object of your faith, right? So Jesus isn't some ratty rope bridge that can't hold us. Jesus is the perfect bridge. He says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the road. I'm the departure. I'm the exodus. Trust me. And so my question for you is when you run into difficult situations in your life, Do you want to double down on your faith and be like, I need to be more faithy. I need stronger faith. I need better faith. I need to look through my technique book. Maybe I need some Jewish rituals. Maybe I need some special techniques. Maybe I need better oils, right? Whatever it might be. Or do you say, Jesus, I need you. You're the object of my faith. Call out to him. Prayer is the activity of faithing. It's not so much about the faithiness of your faith, the greatness of your faith, your strength, your wisdom, your glory. It's about Jesus' glory. It's about who he is. Trust in him. Jesus is the object of our faith, so we should ask him for help. There are going to be weeks where you do all kinds of incredible things in Jesus' name, and you're going to be walking into the next week being like, God is with me. I can do stuff for him. And then you're going to fail. And you have a decision at that point, just like the disciples to say, either it's about me and my technique, or I should just ask God for help. And it's not about me. I'm just going to ask him for help. I'm going to pray. The new Exodus, just like the old Exodus, is experienced by faith, trust, daily trust, asking God for help. Pray 
and seek answers from his word. Listen to what he says. He must be the object of our heart desires and the object of our trust. And then there's one more little final saying he says to wrap up. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. He said it's through his death and resurrection that the new exodus is going to be accomplished. And they missed it. So often they missed it. So often we miss it. We think it's about us, but it's really about him and what he's doing. As I think about parades, I was kind of flipping through my mind thinking like, is there anything in the Bible about parades? You know, like what's wrong with me? I want to justify myself biblically because I hate parades. Like maybe there's, you know, a verse I can find. Yeah, parades are bad. Actually, I think parades are generally seen as a good thing in the Bible. There's not like the specific word that shows up, but a parade is, is generally this thing that's a celebration of a victory, right? That's generally what a parade is biblically. So Colossians talks about this a little bit, how, how Jesus triumphs over his enemies. And Ephesians talks about this. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul quotes a parade chapter from Psalm 68, right? So I know we're jumping all over the place, but let me read Psalm 68. Psalm 68 says this, You ascended on high, God, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, in your parade, a chain of captains, a parade of captives, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. God is leading a parade of victory. He's accomplished independence for us over sin and selfishness and death. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul takes that image of the victory parade of this war, this cosmic battle that God has won, and he turns it just a little bit. And he says that is expressed in the gifts that God has given to his church. All of you with all your unique gifts operating by faith in Jesus day to day, the whole church growing up together, learning to trust Jesus in the little difficult places of life where you're serving your neighbors you're loving your coworker. You're being faithful to your family in unique ways. As you're expressing your unique gifts, Paul says this is this great victory parade of the new exodus that Jesus has accomplished. We're being led by a resurrected Savior. He is our King who gives these good gifts that we're celebrating. We're having a parade, not just standing there and watching, but we are the parade as we live lives of trust in Him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've saved us and transformed us and you're leading us in a new life. Help us to trust day by day that you're with us and serve one another in love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.